Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Friday Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Cabernal Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Alicia Priest, president of the OEA. Friday Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. Well, we are joined uh, today by Amanda Ewing, our uh, legislative and political organizing boss. Uh, Amanda, a lot happening this week. We have a lot to talk about. Um, how are you? How's it going? Deadline week. Are you exhausted? Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's Friday. <laughs> so um, tell us about, uh, this is a deadline week. Tell us about what that means. So uh, it's a it's a good week in, in my book because any bill that didn't pass out of committee uh, by yesterday is now dead for the rest of session. So allegedly. we have a whole lot. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> allegedly. Um, we have a whole lot of bills um, that, you know, unfortunately good ones too, but uh, definitely bad ones that uh, are now off the table. And we know that the ones we're, fo- there's a much smaller number that we're going to focus on now going forward. That's helpful. Um, so talk to us about vouchers. That's a big thing. And voucher tax credits, all of that stuff. That's been a big thing we've been talking about all along. Um, how did things shake out? So, uh, the house was disappointing this week. Um, we saw the house common education committee pass a voucher bill, house bill 2673. Um, that bill says that, uh, students that are attending schools that have received an F on the A to F report card for three years can, um, take their state funding and use it as a voucher and pay for private school tuition with it. We also saw a, Sorry. Even though by the way it's set up, the bottom 5% has to have an F, even if they were a great school, they have to, they have to designate 5% Fs. So some people are set up for failure. Yes. A lot of people don't know that. That is the 8F is the bell curve. So you have that built in no matter what's happening. So yes, that's correct. Uh, You know, it's, um, this is disappointing. Uh, yeah. This is a bill that we really need to convey to our house members. We don't want, and is not good for our public schools. But there were another one. Can we can we talk just quickly about that though? I did have a, one more question about it because there was um, there's been some talk of oh this is going to be helpful to F schools. This is going to help them because they're going to get some extra funding, and that is not. This is no windfall. This is no windfall. How would they get right. extra funding? People are taking their funding yeah. and students away. Yes. So the bill has a provision that says that um, the students at the F school will be weighted 1.1 for the for the weighted uh, funding formula number, right? So um, if the state aid, you know, money is based on each student equaling a one, then uh, in theory, this school would get more funding for each kid in their school. But um, it's a misunderstanding of the funding formula because most kids are already weighted higher than 1.1. Um, basically, only fourth through sixth graders are rated are, are weighted one, and all other grades are already higher than 1.1. So, um, you know, it's just sort of pretending that we're going to do something yeah. uh, to help these struggling schools and struggling students. And in reality, it does nothing. Yeah. If you wanted to give F, F schools support, you could support them. You don't have to tie it to vouchers. Um, 
All right. So what, right, what are, because an F school, the reality is that's an impoverished school um, where there's high needs, where they would benefit from lower class size, where they would benefit from uh, community services like health, dental, uh, eye, mental health. Um, eye health, mental health, mm-hmm. nutrition, extra nutritional services, yeah. um, you know, uh, and um, more educators and support staff there to help them out. That's what helps uh, children, you know, overcome some of those obstacles. So what other voucher stuff is happening? So we also have the uh, tax credit vouchers. Um, We've seen a new uh, legislator uh, decide to take up this mantle. We've got Representative Hassenbach, a a former teacher um, who has uh, House Bill 2701. And this is the identical bill we've been talking about that was originally introduced by Representative Eccles. Um, it says, you know, we've got this program in place that says if you um, are a person who wants to donate a scholarship to a private school, so I'm going to give a private school some money so that they can give out a scholarship, I can get a tax credit in return for that. So, you know, it's kind of a free donation, if you will. Yeah. Um, this bill at the would expand the caps. So right now we only give out three and a half million dollars in tax credits, which is a lot, you know, that's not nothing, but um, uh, this bill would increase that cap to 10 million in the first year. And then would say any year that we get close to that cap, up to 90% of that cap uh, in the future, uh, the following year it would increase by 25%. So we've got like an unlimited tax credit here that's going to increase, you know, year after year uh, in order to incentivize donations to private schools. Is the, now, these tax credits have, there's been a conversation about there, there's a public side and, oh, this is so great for public schools because now uh, people can do the same thing for public schools. So people aren't taking advantage of that public school money. They're doing this for private schools, correct? Yeah, you know, the, the cap on the public side is one and a half million, and we've never come close to meeting that cap. Yeah. Now, this bill, though, does expand, and it makes it um, easier for people to donate directly to their schools or directly to their foundations. So, you know, we could see an increase in those donations, and if we did, you know, I, I mean, I personally think that would be great. I think um, figuring out how to increase funding to public education is exactly what the legislature needs to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't require you know, giving away tax dollars to private schools that have no accountability when it comes to their finances or their academics. So Amanda, was there anything else good that came out of, of either house last week or didn't come out? Yes. I mean, we did see, um, good news in the Senate and I, uh, really want to, you know, give our appreciation to Senator Pugh and Senator Pemberton, who are the chair and vice chair of the Senate education committee, because, you know, they chose not to hear the many Senate bills that were expanding existing voucher programs. You know, it was really, it was in the Senate where we saw the laundry list of vouchers to try to, you know, provide them for kids who were bullied or in foster care or had an incarcerated parent or had a parent in the military. I mean, lots of bills. And, you know, they didn't get a hearing in Senate Ed. And so those are are dead now for session. That is excellent news. So, um, now to get back on the bad news train, um, we've got some uh, 
we've got a, a bill, an anti-educator, anti-support staff bill that has come up um, and made it through committee. Can you talk to us about its Senate Bill Shenanigans 6? committee. Shenan yeah, talk shenanigans about this uh, joining your association. Yeah, this is uh, Senate Bill 634 from uh, Senator Daniels out of Bartlesville. Uh, I was real disappointed to see this bill get a hearing, but um, it was heard by Senator Daniels' own committee that she chairs, Senate Judiciary. And yeah, Judiciary. That makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> all education bills should go through Judiciary. Obviously. Judiciary, except for when it's not. So, sorry. Go ahead. So this bill was introduced last year uh, to Senate Education and didn't get a hearing uh, yeah. by that was by a different author. And so this year, yeah, it went to Senator Daniels' committee. Um, it's a bill that says, I mean, frankly, it's a bill that says educators um, might not really know what they're doing when they sign up to be a member of OEA. Um, they have to, <laughs> okay. after they sign up, <laughs> follow up with a... Um, form that they send in or email to their HR or payroll clerk saying that they understand that they do in fact have a right not to join an association or a union, uh, but they're choosing to anyway. And then uh, that's not enough. An administrator has to follow up with an email saying, I just want to make sure that you intentionally joined your association and intentionally turned in this form that says you do want to join and you want to payroll deduct your association dues. And if they then respond to that email, um, then they can go ahead and payroll deduct just like they have been. And this is something that all members would have to do every year. And then, and then that email is printed and tied to a pigeon, and that pigeon is then sent down the hall. <laughs> you feed the pigeon and you send it back to the office. Like this is as if, like, as if our admin staff and our you know administrative staff does not have enough to do. Like, right? This is the most. This is the most. Well, I'm not going to say it. What I really think about it, but I. <laughs> I just, that's just bonkers. It's a, a huge burden on staff just because you don't want people to join OEA. And that's what it comes down to because they're not doing it to our first responders. You know, they're not doing it to other professionals. Like they're just targeting OEA. And, and they're not doing support. it to the um, magazine company that, you know, right. you can, or you your can deduct your magazine subscription and they're not saying, hey, do you really realize that you're buying this magazine? Right. Or United Way, you know, are you sure you want to help people? But for real though, it sort of reminds me of when I'm, when I let my kindergartner dress herself and like at several points in the morning, I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to? She's like, yeah, duh. And even a six wait, year wait, my 17 year old says the same thing to me <laughs> <laughs> when I dress myself. Are you sure? Have, do you need help? Like people know what I think that's a good analogy because yeah, is this is patronizing. This is it insulting. Is. It's insulting it to educators and it's entirely unnecessary. And you know, um, this is just an attack on our association. And it's onerous to the time that yes. administrators would have to spend following up. It's just dumb. And really. I just yes. Um yes. So okay. One of the one of the parts of the conversation has been about Janice. Now, Oklahoma is a right to work state, so it's not even like there's no default membership anyway. So I don't understand why Janice has even been a conversation. Can you kind of explain that back, that talking point, that 
issue? Sure. So um, there was a Supreme Court case, Janice versus AFSCME. Uh, that's the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a case that applied to states that were not right to work. So uh-huh. um, the practice was in states like California, if a you know if a, a um, place of business the employees decided to unionize in in a you know public place of business like a uh-huh. school district or a you know firefighters. Um, then members would pay dues to their union and non-members had to pay what was called an agency fee. They had to pay a fee, uh, to cover the cost of the union negotiating their contract for them, even if they didn't want to pay for any of the other services that they received, you know, since they weren't a member. Okay. Um, a lot of States did that. And when Janice, uh, the decision came down in, I think 2018, um, you know, it was decided that basically all states became right to work states like Oklahoma. You know, yeah. the Supreme Court said you can't charge those fees anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, the decision had literally no impact in Oklahoma because as a right to work state, we never and even before right to work passed, we never charged non-members fees. Yeah. Uh, so it has no impact here whatsoever. But Senator Daniels is under the, you know, I hope just mistaken understanding that um because of Janice, we need this law in place to make sure that all union members uh, know that they don't have to join. Now, um, it just it just doesn't, you know, it makes sense maybe that in California, somebody that's been forced to pay dues for years, you might want to make sure that they sign something the next time they pay saying, hey, just heads up, yeah. you're no longer constitutional, you're constitutionally, you know, yeah. not required to, to pay this fee. So, you know, just sign this thing to make sure we know that you know that. But um, it's just never been the case here and it doesn't apply at all. Well, I'm glad that you explained that because I've heard that kind of here and there, the Janice issue. And I'm like, that's not even us. What are we, what? So, and it's not like for all union, it's not for all union people. It's only for educators. Yeah. So plumbers and pipe fitters, they don't have to have this thing. Firefighters. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, only for for us. Oh, it's a present just for us. It's like Christmas, but terrible. Yeah, uh, it's like but, Christmas well, in my I childhood. Mean, something else that occurs to me is how many times do you have to sign a form explaining that you do know your rights, right? I mean, it might even make sense uh, to have someone once sign a form saying, okay, yeah, I get it. I don't have to do this. I'm choosing to do it. Uh, but year after year after year, like... How often yeah. does one need to explain that they understand their rights uh, before we ju- we believe them? Right. right. And, also, and twice a year, because when you fill it out and then when your administrator says, did you really mean to fill it out? I mean, and that <laughs> seems like a bullying tactic. I, I often fill out forms in full and then have no idea what just happened. And I need <laughs> someone to follow up and check. <laughs> I, it's just fast. It's just fascinating. Fascinating is the word I use for terrible. Um, well, okay. What do we need? What do we, what do members need to be doing? What do we need to be doing um, now that the deadline week has passed and stuff is moving out of committee? What, what, what should folks be doing now? So my number one ask of our uh, members and anyone, you know, um, who cares about public education 
is to contact your state senator because this Senate Bill 634 passed committee and is now going to the floor of the Senate. So we need all senators to be contacted and asked to vote no on uh, state bill, uh, Senate Bill 634. An important detail that I didn't mention is that in committee, uh, Senate leadership, Senator Treat and David, uh, came into the committee meeting and voted yes to help pass this bill. So um, that's a sign usual. that we're not usual. No, that's real unusual. So yeah. um, it kind of conveys that we're up against some tough opposition. Yeah. And and so yeah. this is, you know, this is priority number one. We have to make sure our senators know that we don't want this bill and we ask and expect them to vote no. On the House side, um, we would like to see everyone contact their representatives because, again, um, these voucher bills we talked about, you know, the regular voucher and the tax credit vouchers are, uh, they passed committee and are now headed to the House floor. And so we need folks contacting their representative and asking them to vote no on vouchers and, and tax credit vouchers, right? I mean, yep, yep. we consider them all vouchers, but um, it's good to just make sure that you're very clear and say, I want you to vote no on vouchers and on tax credit vouchers. All right, a lot going on. Uh, we appreciate the work that you and the legislative team and all of our members who've been calling and emailing and some folks going to the Capitol in person, we appreciate everybody pushing for pushing for public schools. It's, I know this is a hard week to be doing it, so we appreciate it. We're joined now by um, Erica Wright of the Oklahoma Rural Schools Coalition. Erica, how are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, we um, we want to visit with you about uh, what all you guys do and um, vouchers specifically and uh, that issue with rural schools. Um, but we this week, um, the the public funds for public schools, Oklahoma Coalition, announced its formation and you all are part of that group. Um, so talk about what it what it is that the that the rural schools coalition does. What are you guys advocating for? What do you stand for? So our group is basically a, a pretty new group that's been formed that is a grassroots organization, including everything from parents to teachers, administrators, community leaders. And it's an online group based with Facebook where we come together and really focus on public education issues, specifically how they impact rural schools. And our goal is to start to create, we, we saw kind of a, a, a gap, if you will, that nobody was really focusing on rural schools in particular and engaging parents with school leaders around legislation and other issues. And so really what we wanted to do was to come to together and create a space where um, public school advocates from rural schools could come to learn more about what's going on up at the Capitol and also to eventually in the long term start to engage those communities and engage their neighbors in learning more and being more educated about their vote when it comes to the ballot box. Um, and you're a public school parent. Yes, I am proudly. Um, I mean, there's so much, there's so much work to be done. Why is this a, why is this a critical, I mean, it, you described it well as the, you know, filling that gap. Why is it so important for our rural schools to have that voice together? Well, I think when you look at the at the makeup of the rural school um, 
coalition and the groups of communities that we're dealing with, we've got, you know, a large percentage of the school districts in the state are rural schools. Mm-hmm. And I think from, from what I saw, what kind of spurred us into to starting this movement is that there really was a disconnect with rural voters who we know love their public schools. The public yes. schools are the heartbeat of their communities. Yes. But yet sometimes, well, not sometimes, many, many times that there's a disconnect between their love for public schools and then how they're voting on voting day. And so I think what our goal is to do is to really start to bring public education into the focus and make it a top three voting issue for rural Mm -hmm. voters in the state. I don't think we're there yet. And so that's really kind of what our goal is, is to kind of fill that gap and focus specifically on delivering that information. And then eventually Mm -hmm. we have some long-term goals, like I said earlier, of actually physically going into communities and creating a larger, broader grassroots network to get people involved. But really, I think that the goal is to um, start raising awareness and really connecting those dots for voters that, that in order for things to change, in order for our legislature to start um, listening to public education advocates are going to need to hear more rural voices come into the mix. And so that's really what we're here to do. So one of the, one of the issues um, affecting rural schools is this issue of vouchers and, you know, their vouchers come in many shapes and sizes and um, talk about, I mean, I think a lot of folks sometimes think, well, that's really not my issue because there's not a private school in my community you know, or there's not, there's not even in the county, there's not a private school um, where my kid could go to. Um, why is that, why are, why is the voucher issue also a rural school issue? Well, I think that the, the two pushbacks that you just mentioned are exactly why it needs to be a rural school issue. You know, when you look at the landscape for private schools in the state of Oklahoma, only 7% of the zip codes even have a private school to um, for, for parents wow. to send their children to. Wow. And so, so it's not, um, that's exactly why it needs to be a rural issue because yeah. rural voters don't understand that. Okay, so maybe you can't send your kids to a public or to a private school. Mm-hmm. That's exactly why you need to get involved with this because if we, if we continue to just ignore it, thinking it's a private school thing, what's happening is your legislators aren't hearing from you. And then ultimately, yeah. if these things go through, then your tax dollars as a rural Oklahoman are going to pay for the private school education of somebody in one of those seven zip codes. And yeah. I think that that's exactly why this needs to be an issue for rural voters, because that money, when it goes to the private schools, as you guys know, that that depletes the resources that are available for public schools and for rural public schools that are struggling. And so that's really why we're on board with what we're doing with the larger coalition is because vouchers definitely directly are detrimental to um, our rural school districts. You know, I grew up in a rural community in Arkansas, and I can't even like I can't think of the nearest private school to grow where I grew up. I, I mean, and if someone had said that private school vouchers are a thing, I mean, I don't think that that would cross my mind that that would affect my life or my school or my community in any way because it feels so far right. away you know but it takes that it takes a money out of the whole pie that everybody shares yeah i think a pie is a great analogy right and i think that's what a lot of our 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 rural constituents haven't 
kind of the light hasn't gone on yet um, with them to understand that when you start taking those pieces of pie away, then there's less pie left for everybody else to enjoy. And um, that's exactly why this needs to be a rural issue for voters. And that's, I mean, I've heard you have that conversation lots of times, Alicia, with educators and support out across the state. Absolutely. You know, um, one of one of the analogies that we use is we can't take our tax money away from roads and bridges and only use that designated for, you know, the roads that I drive on. It's <laughs> right. for the good of all. Right. So right. we all pool our money in there and it's for the good of all. And that's what public education is. We educate all. Yeah. Everyone who comes through our door and um, and every time you take a voucher away, uh, you know, and, and they the proponents say that they're also removing the student. So you don't have that expense, but but that doesn't um, decrease your overhead for your building right. and right. your lights and your employees, because uh, the students that will take vouchers won't all be from the second grade class. Mm-hmm. Right. They'll be from, right. you know, everybody everybody here and there. And so, you know, it's really unfortunate. I, when I think about rural communities and, you know, you, like those administrators are, I mean, they are walking the line all the time to budget and how can we make sure that our kids have opportunities? Even if we don't have a high school with, you know, a thousand kids, how can we make sure that our kids have access to stuff? How can we make sure they have access to activities, to academics and all? And that's such a fine line that they walk when you have such a limited budget with a smaller district. I would just think that that impact would be, you know, if you lose a few thousand dollars, I mean, it just seems like you would feel that even more in in a small district. You know, you really do. And I think another thing that we have to consider that is unique to our rural districts is the cost of transportation as well that has to work into the budget. You know, that transportation formula hasn't been updated since 1983. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so, for example, here in Noble, which Noble's kind of an interesting mix. I mean, we're right by Norman. We're not far from Oklahoma City, but yet our district is 168 square miles. And so we spend over a million dollars a year. Yeah, that's about as big of almost the same footprint as Norman Public Schools. And so that is. Yeah. yeah. We we spend a million dollars a year in um, transportation and yet we get reimbursed about, I think, a hundred thousand to the million or something like that. So so that is another thing that I think people don't take into consideration is, you know, there's, there's a, there's a huge cost to rural school districts just to operate on transportation and getting these kiddos into school. Um, And private schools are not picking kids up. No, no. And not, I mean, not just the, the cost of the gas and all of that, but that burns through your buses faster that the wear and tear on tires and shocks Mm -hmm. and all of that Mm -hmm. it you know it all adds up 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 yeah you're gonna you're gonna run out of miles on your buses a lot quicker if you've got 168 miles square miles of district yeah and I think another thing that actually ties this conversation of transportation back into the voucher issue you know um I've said it a million times the the heartbeat of a rural, of any community, not just rural, all communities is, is the public school system. But in a rural setting, everything really revolves around a healthy school district. It's the largest yeah. employer in your town. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, your so so anything when you don't have a healthy school district in a rural community, that impacts your commercial health of, of your of your businesses, your main streets, your downtowns, your yep. your faith organizations, your churches. Everything is so intertwined culturally in a rural community. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about these vouchers, we talk about rural schools who are already struggling, and then you continue to push to remove and take away some of these these valuable resources. It really, really is detrimental because what happens is, is if schools start to fold because of, you know, the irresponsible management of the legislature and getting resources to them, you start to see these schools close and consolidate. Well, now all of a sudden you've got kids on a bus having to travel 60 and 70 miles away and they're on a bus for three or four hours a day. That's not good for any, any kiddo that's out there. you know, when you talk about that, like, it makes me think about that this is really when I, a cultural identity of our state, you know, that yeah. people, that people should feel like that if they have school age kids, that they can, that they, they can choose to live in Noble, that they can choose to live in Harmon County if they want. They can live in Atoka County if they want and still be able to send their kids, um, to public schools and not have to think, well, you know, we, I guess we'll have to move to town. Um, and then maybe we can come back to our rural area after they graduate high school. Like that to me, this is about cultural identity of our whole state and parents being able to choose to choose that option, you know, and, and know that their kids can go to those schools and not, um, and not feel like they've got to go somewhere else because they don't have enough, enough for their kids. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. You know, and I think that's why we've had such a tremendous response and, and, and we continue to have so many people joining our group every day, because I think that, like you said, in the cultural landscape of rural Oklahoma, you know, the conversation about public education impacts so many more people than just the people who are inside the walls of the school. Right. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think people are starting to wake up to that and they're starting to see that, you know, it, we decided at the beginning of this year when we rebranded to the Rural Schools Coalition to go ahead and poll our members because it's not me. It's not about my agenda. Like, what do they feel are the biggest threats, the top three things that we want to focus on this year? And the number one thing that people said they wanted to focus on was fighting against these vouchers. And I think they're starting wow. to wake up and yeah. clue in that the threat of this is not just to the school itself that's in their town, but to their entire community and their entire rural way of life. Yep. Um, and so we're, we're really excited to see that we've got so much, so much activity and so many people joining. And um, it's just a really exciting thing to see. So if somebody is interested in uh, the Rural Schools Coalition, how would they find you? How would they get involved? So right now we are, you know, we're just kind of building this ship as we go. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to put together a, a grass, a true grassroots effort when everybody is also working full-time jobs and yep. doing other things. And so yep. we're in the process. Our goal is, is eventually after this legislative session to um, launch our website and kind of you know, expand into that. But for now, if people want to get involved and kind of um, plug into what we're doing and follow what we're doing, they can go join our Facebook group at the Oklahoma Rural Schools Coalition. And that's really our hub. That's right now what we are as a Facebook group. We've got 
Um, oh my gosh, last I checked, I think we have over 5,300 members. I, I'm wow. getting uh, membership requests 20, 30 a day. So they're rolling in like crazy. So that would really be the best place for people to plug in because it's the only place for people to plug into. <laughs> the best and only. And, well, and the important thing simple. is that they don't just join your group, but once they get the information, then they right. act on the information. They contact yep. their legislators. Yep. They, you right. know, I mean, that's that's huge. Right. And so what we're really looking to do as far as action is once exactly, Alicia, what you said, once people join the group, um, we want them to stay engaged. Um, so legislatively, we kind of are keeping them up the best we can with the whirlwind of nonsense that's been going through. <laughs> Um, it's been a lot. There's it's a lot. a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And so I'm sure they're overwhelmed with like, so if you come join our group, don't be overwhelmed right now with all of the stuff that's coming out because we are too. Um, but like you said, taking it a step further and taking the action items, we try to post legislative action items and updates, mm -hmm. um, asking people to take action. And then after this legislative session, we're going to be looking for people that are willing to kind of step in and take a, a community lead and, and work with us as we move out of legislation time. Yeah. And we're not in an election year, kind of working on um, expanding this to do some kind of in-person train the trainers so that people can step forward and lead their communities in getting involved. Awesome. Well, thank you for what you guys are, are doing to advocate for our schools and our communities. It's important work and, and thanks for taking time to come and visit with us. You bet. I'm so, so happy to be here and thank you for having us. And we just look forward to, to continuing to work with everybody that's on the larger coalition to um, continue to fight to keep public funds in our public schools. And welcome to Alicia's Morning Announcements. Do, 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 do. On Tuesday, March 2nd, is Election Day for 32 counties and 17 school districts across the state of Oklahoma. Um, bond issues are big for school districts. They are an important part of our funding. So get out and vote. Yes. Uh, we, have, we have to have that funding for our schools to do heat and air, to do building maintenance things, new roofs. Yep. technology, books, I mean, buses, there's all of it, buses, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's a link on the okea.org homepage where you can go and see, uh, where all elections are. Um, secondly, delegate assembly credentials, Delegate Assembly is our huge governing conference. We are a member-driven organization. And um, every local, uh, based on the number of members you have, can send representatives to our Delegate Assembly where we make decisions for the association, whether they're new business items, which are ideas that individuals have, and they want um, the assembly to talk about it and say, hey, we think that's a good idea too, and we should be doing it. And so you get people to pass your new business item idea um, to our budget and our resolutions, which are our belief statements to our uh, legislative goals uh, or agenda. One, one is done at delegate assembly and, and one follows it. And I can't remember if it's goals or agenda. I get them confused. It's, I um, love delegate assembly. It's so fun. And I love listening to members debate because it's like all the perspectives, you know, like rural, urban, suburban, 
liberal, conservative, like classroom teachers, administrators, support staff, like retirees. I just love it. I love yeah. it. Yes, it, it it is it is a big deal. Yeah. And so if you if your local is going to participate in that, um, sure. credentials are due March 15th. If you don't uh, have the paperwork to get that done, uh, contact Rita Kennedy, rkennedy at okea.org, and yes. she will hook you up with all the rules and all that stuff. Um, those credentials are due March 15th. Delegate Assembly is April 30th and May 1st. Um, It is virtual again this year because we didn't figure that uh, it would be a good idea to have 200 plus people in a room together. Um, Sitting very close. (laughs) Sitting very close quite yet. And so so it is virtual five to eight on the 30th and um, then like nine to noon on the first. So um, so we're being respectful of your ability to sit in front of a zoom and <laughs> we'll have, we'll have brain breaks and things like that. It, you know, I, yes. I, I believe in, um, using, uh, good adult learning theory, um, when planning these things. So, um, we'll put some fun in there too. Uh, and, and so talking about putting 200 people in a room together, vaccine distributions for yeah. educators happened this week. And yeah. um, we've seen, you know, my Facebook page is full of people celebrating public schools week and um, putting pictures up of themselves getting vaccines. And they are just overjoyed with, uh, w- with that opportunity. So can I tell you that I had the opportunity Monday to get vaccinated uh, the first time ever that a comorbidity has paid off. Um, I was <laughs> like, it's never been great until like I finally got vaccinated. I was so excited. And I would tell you, like getting the vaccine is overwhelming. It's just like emotionally, like such a relief. But I, so you, I went to the, one of the big ones down in Norman where it's like 10,000 people in a day Yes, and they were running like clockwork. It was amazing. Um, I spent longer in traffic than I spent in, in the building and, um, they, in the 15 minutes where they make sure that nothing has gone awry. Um, I saw school t-shirts from everywhere and it was so emotional. And I just, I just wanted to um, hug people, which is not appropriate. I mean, right. not even in non-pandemic times. You shouldn't just hug a bunch of strangers. It's weird. Um, but like, I just wanted to yell thank you to everybody. Like, thank you for staying in public schools. Thank you for staying in the classroom. And thank you for, there was uh, actually two people that didn't know each other that were both cafeteria workers next to me talking about how excited they were. And it's just, uh, like this has just been such a year for everybody in education, everybody, but especially education employees. And I just, it was amazing. It made me feel all the feelings. I just wanted to hug and hug and love on everybody. But when I got approved for my appointment, I cried. Yeah. And I'm not a crier. I, you know, <laughs> I have three brothers and um, <laughs> crying, you get beat up if you cry. Right. 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 right so, right. so I, I, you know, I'm not a big crier, but um and during legislative session, I like push my emotions all the way down until I can walk on it. <laughs> I gotta hold this until later. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it it's like, oh, we're 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 gonna live. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's yeah. it, that's the kind of of weight that we've been bearing, and yes. 
Um, and our listeners probably don't know, but my daughter tested positive for COVID on the 13th. And, um, and her worry was that she would have spread it to us. Yeah. And, and, and knowing what can happen because of that with yeah. living with people with comorbidities yeah. as well. And, um, and, and that was the weight of the world for her. Uh-huh. And that's what our kids are living with. Right. Right. And, and my, uh, one of my daughter's teachers has, a a, a comorbidity that makes it COVID very dangerous. And, mm-hmm. you know, our, and she's a fifth grader and she worries about her. And when I picked her up from school, uh, Wednesday, I shouted down, like, did you get your shot? And she was like, yes. Yes. And like, and Mia felt that relief. Our fifth grader felt that relief for her teacher. And I just, yeah. It just feels like it's been such a long, long, hard year. And I mean, like almost a full year since everything shut down, the state shut down last, last, last March. Yeah. yeah. And so it just, it was, I just was so, I just oh was overcome seeing everybody in their Tuttle shirts and their Jones shirts and their Oklahoma City and Middell. And I just, it was amazing seeing everybody come through because I just want everyone to be safe and okay and feel like they can do their jobs and, and not have to worry and just get to do, get back to doing what they love to do, how they love to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and not have to worry about what what could happen. Yep. Um, and so I know we've gotten some frequently asked questions that educators, when we say educators in this, we're talking all pre-K 12, Mm -hmm. um, public school educators. Yeah. Uh, which means certified and support staff. Right. So technicians, Any, cafeteria yep. workers, teachers, uh, principals, uh, secretaries. Clerks. Yep. Everybody. And, and everybody, a common thing that, that we've gotten is about, because often um, in the, you know, in the media or online, people refer to it as K-12 schools. And so they're like, wait, I, you know, I'm in pre-K, I teach pre-K absolutely applies to early childhood. So yeah. it's just, a common abbreviation of K-12. It's not, you know, only kindergarten, it's pre-K-2. So those are some common, some questions that we've, that we've heard. So if you work in any capacity, any capacity with uh, public schools and not just, and not just K-12, we've also had questions about K-8, absolutely applies to you. Yeah. So get, schedule your shot if you can, and you're able and all that stuff. And it's, you deserve the protection. I'm so, so glad. Yes. yes. All the happies, all the happies. Oh man. Well, we want to say thank you so much to Amanda Ewing of our legislative team and Erica Wright of the Oklahoma Rural Schools Coalition for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernall Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Alicia Priest, president of the OEA. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at friedokerpodcasts at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next Friday. Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.